0: You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to
1: provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello and welcome to the Edu Salon podcast. Recorded on the lands of the Wadjuk people of the Noongar Nation, to whose elders past, present, and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Netalitsky, and today I'm excited to welcome Dr. Amanda Heffernan. Amanda's Twitter handle, at Chalk Hands, reflects her roots as a teacher. She previously worked as a school principal and principal coach and mentor for Queensland's Department of Education. She's now a Senior Lecturer in Educational Leadership at Monash University, whose work focuses on principals' work and lives, and on how we can better attract, support, and keep school leaders within the profession. She's won numerous awards, including the Headley Beer Award for Educational Writing for her book, The Principal and School Improvement. In 2016, Amanda and I were at a Melbourne Awards Night together when we were both awarded one of the Australian Council of Educational Leaders New Voice in Educational Leadership Research Scholarships. She's co-editor of a number of books, some of which I've had the pleasure to write for, and also co-editor of the Journal of Educational Administration and History. Welcome, Amanda. Thanks, Deb. Thanks for having me. It's my absolute pleasure. So let's start the conversation. And I suppose your research is around school leadership and principals in particular, but educational leadership is a really big field. So I wonder if you could just start by talking to us about either how you might describe your thinking around school leadership and how you might situate your work that you do within that big field of educational leadership?
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good question because it sort of will frame, I guess, everything that I talk about for the rest of the podcast. So um, I see myself within the critical perspective school of educational leadership, um, which means that The sorts of things that I'm really interested in are questions of power and social justice and really trying to make sense of, I suppose, the experiences of, in this case, school leaders within education systems. So I'm less interested in kind of the 10 ways to get your school moving and improving stuff, which, you know, of course has a a place, but um, my work really sits within those questions around how people experience policy or or the current kind of conditions that we're working in and what it means for their everyday lives.
1: And so I was reading one of the reports that you are involved in. You um, co-wrote in 2020 with Andrew Pierpoint, the report Autonomy, Accountability and Principles Work. And you had, I think, 235 participants looking at the work of principals and they described the role of principal as being overwhelming, all-encompassing with complexities and intensification of pace and work, extension of their work into their private time their time getting absorbed by things that they hoped it wouldn't get absorbed by. So I'm not a principal. And when I read some of the stuff about principalship and principals work and lives, it sounds quite scary. So can you talk a little bit about your understanding in all the research that you do about what is the what are the realities of the lives of school leaders and principals in particular?
0: Mm, I think one of the things that I really try to be conscious of in my work is that because of the you know the sorts of questions that I ask and the sort of perspectives that I take, it it does often turn out to be a, a report like the one you've described, where um, it's really easy and really clear to see that the role of the principal is in its current form for the majority of people that I work with in my research, um, that it's overwhelming, that it's it demands a lot of people both in terms of. The workload itself, but also I think um, what's really important is understanding the emotional intensity of being a school principal. And I do largely focus on school principals, which I suppose is partly born from my experience as a school principal. Um, but I think that there's something really interesting and unique about that role as the person who, you know, the buck stops with them at the end of the day. And I think one of the challenges that we're really aware of is just, as you said, you know, you read these reports and and, and the sorts of stories that people are sharing. And a lot of people do think, why would I ever want to take on that role? And so increasingly, we are hearing from people that the people who would naturally be the next cohort of principals, whether that's people in, you know, middle leadership roles, particularly deputy principals and heads of department or you know, those other sort of senior leadership roles, a lot of them are saying now, we have enough, we, you know, we have enough success in what we're doing, I feel like I'm able to make a difference within the sort of work that I'm doing. And I'm just not interested in taking on that next step, because of, you know, we've got ample evidence of years and years and years from um, Philip Riley's research about the impact of being a principal on people's health and well being. And so I think that what is really interesting and important in terms of, of these issues is that while principals are talking about how challenging the role is and um, the sorts of support that they are really in dire need of to be able to do their work, they're also still reporting really high levels of satisfaction in their work. So even though the job is incredibly difficult, they still go every day because they love the work that they do. They get to make a difference. They get to develop teachers and support staff and and really bring that collective vision to life. And so that keeps them going and keeps them coming back day after day after day. Um, and so what I often think of um, in my work and in the kind of communication and the advocacy and the, and the sorts of things that I do is I really try to focus on what we need is to free principles up from all of the things that are taking them away from that core business of the thing that they love which is one of my participants in that project that you mentioned actually called it giving the gift of education to young people and I think that's a really beautiful phrase because that just centres what the motivation is for so many principles, and reminds us that that's what keeps them going you know through all of the challenges and the difficulties that the role does present.
1: So it's really high challenge,
0: but it's really high reward. I think so. Yeah. And I think part of the challenge, of course, for um, thinking about policy or rethinking policy or rethinking educational leadership is um, finding ways to really meaningfully reduce those challenges. You know, it's, it's not enough to sort of throw out a few newsletters that say you shouldn't check emails at night or um, make sure you switch off at the end of the day because the the level of responsibility and that weight of responsibility that a, a principal feels is not always something that you can leave at the door. And there are those issues that are just urgent and have to be dealt with. So often it, it would be more about removing some of the administrative. That's kind of the thing that always people always come back to is You know, I shouldn't have to be doing multiple reporting of things to the different people in the exact same ways. Like the systems need to better accommodate the work of the principal than they currently do at the moment.
1: I've heard the principal's job by principals be called the best job with the worst of days. And you talk about Phil Riley's work for the Australian Principal Occupational Health, Safety and Wellbeing Survey. And that I mean, there's frightening figures in there about principals and deputies being fatigued, working more than 60 hours a week, being more susceptible than the general population to burnout, sleeping troubles, stress, depression, violence, bullying, but I think what I'm hearing is that there's huge amounts of satisfaction, but there's things that get in the way. And there's a couple of things I've read you write about in terms of what's getting in the way. And one of those things is what you call a culture of performativity. So that way in which principles are regulated, monitored, measured. And you've talked about what the impact of that is on principles, but also that on the flip side, what happens when they either have are given or take for themselves Sort of a more autonomy and a, a more resistant approach to those things that are being expected of them, and maybe do more in terms of what they know is right for their communities and and the sort of moral purpose that they feel. So, can you talk a little bit about that culture of performativity in in schools and in principals' work, and either how the system needs to change or how principals themselves can claw back some of that for themselves?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, In a nutshell, when we're thinking about this culture of performativity, we're thinking about really increased um, measurements and surveillance of schools um, and by extension, of course, principles. We're seeing a lot of externally imposed things on schools that sort of, for example, in more than one jurisdiction across Australia, you will be sort of ostensibly making your strategic plan for the year. And so rather than the, um, I suppose, assumption that some people would make that Um, It's really up to the school to decide what their direction is to meet the local needs of their community and to work within the particular resources that they have or the, the priorities that their community has identified as being really important. They will be given the three targets that they are to work towards and there's very little wiggle room there. And if they don't meet those targets, then it's assumed that that is something that's going wrong with the school rather than placing it within a wider context of, for example, example, we're living in year three of the pandemic right now. So perhaps that's going to have some pretty significant impact upon what's going on, you know, regardless of the level of exposure a community has had to COVID, just the, the unrest and the unsettled feelings that we've all had since 2020 is going to have a, a really significant impact. So that's just one example, you know, there's a million different things that impact on what happens in a school, of course. And so, so what happens as a result of that is often or potentially things like an, a narrowing of curriculum. We start teaching the things that we think will make a real difference in those things that we're being measured on. We start perhaps valuing the things that are measurable rather than the things that are less easily measured. And I think that that is a real source of frustration for a lot of principals that I work with. So, you know, there is, of course, the recognition that we need kids to leave school being literate and numerate. But there is a whole host of other things that people want for the young people in their care that aren't valued by the current culture or system or context or whatever of education within Australia. And beyond, it's not just Australia, this is a a problem that's seen around the world. So some of the work that I've been fortunate to do has been to, as you've said, talk to principals who are able to kind of push back against that a little bit. And the report that I did with the Australian Secondary Principals Association was initially really about these questions of what does autonomy look like in different places across Australia? How do different schools or different principals or communities actually experience these? heavy accountabilities and what does that mean for the autonomy that policy suggests that principles do have you know to varying levels across the country and what we ended up focusing on a lot more because of the conversations we were having with those principles was much more around those questions of health and well-being and Kind of intention to remain within the role. But previous studies that I've done have given me the chance to talk to principals who do really feel quite confident in their autonomy. Um, And there are a number of reasons for that. I don't know if you want me to go into the reasons some people feel more autonomous than others. But in being able to exercise that autonomy, they were really able to sort of confidently say, I'm gonna I'm yep, that stuff that you're telling me to do is really important and I recognize that. But as a community, we've identified, you know, these key things that we think are the critical foundation of what we do within this school. So we'll get to that stuff that you're asking us to do, but first of all, you know, we're gonna work on these foundational things and, and build that community kind of approach. And I think it it made it, you know, it made a huge difference for the community. There was a real sense of value for the community's voice and those relationships that people were building with community members but also teachers felt really empowered because they had had a say you know their voice was being heard in in that strategic planning and that principal also felt really committed to what they were doing because those goals weren't just being handed to them in an email, you know, from a spreadsheet, and so um, they, of course, because you know everything else was humming and everyone was uh, was um, doing really well, and the the kind of basics were being looked after for those young people. Of course, the results showed that you know the the things that um, that they were being measured on, they were doing fine, and everyone was happy. In a, you know, I'm painting a really rosy picture here, but it, it was quite a stark contrast to some of the other schools that. I had either worked with or or researched with in various contexts where um, people really felt like policy was being done to them rather than kind of having a say in what was happening in their school.
1: And were there patterns in terms of those principals that felt that they could anchor themselves in what they believed was right rather than what they were being told they had to do?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a few things that are quite consistent in um, how confident people feel in in how they take up their autonomy. So um, career stage is a really, really significant one for a number of reasons. You, the further you are in your career, you know, the, the more you understand how far a rule can be bent before it's broken. Perhaps, you know, you've made those mistakes or you've um, you've worked out the kind of hidden rules within a system. And so not only do you understand the rules, but you understand h- how to draw upon particular networks to help you make decisions that might go against the grain or that might be a little bit difficult. Um, and that obviously gives people confidence in being able to, to make difficult calls sometimes. We also see often that... Um, Amanda Ketty used this phrase in a paper like 10 years ago now that I always um, it just stuck in my brain that schools that had more advantageous places in a hierarchy felt more confident in their autonomy and so when we think about what that might look like that schools that are well established schools that are perhaps you know seen to be what we might think of as leafy green schools um, so schools that are already Doing pretty well against these particular measures or targets will be left alone a lot of the time to kind of get on with it. And so that lets them feel a little bit more flexible in what they do as well. And there are also, you know, other things like formalised autonomy policies like independent public schools, which popped up in Western Australia and Queensland. And so that sort of formalised autonomy then um, gave more confidence to people who had taken that up compared to people who remained out of that particular system. And that was something that was quite new at the time that I was doing my PhD. So that's you know, stuck in my brain as well around what, what structures we put into place to, to make people feel confident in, um, in taking that kind of local focus.
1: And I remember you writing about the punk rock principle where you would use the metaphor of <laughs> punk rock musicians as uh, I think part of that willingness and enthusiasm to resist. You remember that paper?
0: Yeah, I think I think about that paper all the time. Um, I'm actually writing another paper at the moment with um, Pat Thompson and we're using Punk to look at um, women school leaders and I know we'll talk probably a little bit later on about that particular project but um, that paper I think was really important for me in, in being able to think differently. So you and I edited a special issue of the Journal of Educational Administration and History along with Nicole Mockler about alternative metaphors. So um, you used your Cheshire Cat metaphor, which was always um, really generative. And I think one of the things that was really interesting in in doing the research for that special issue in that paper was this idea that we often use the same kind of handful of metaphors in leadership. And they're often very masculine, kind of uh, sometimes or frequently drawn from sports and, and the military and in a school, that's not always um, entirely appropriate, I think. And so what we tried to do was come up with a whole range of different metaphors. Um, and so drawing upon the punk metaphor for me was a way of understanding those questions of resistance and pushing back against the status quo and kind of just people who think differently, who aren't quite willing to accept the way things are done and, and can kind of imagine a different or a better future and, and how they might work towards that. So again, that principle was very confident in their autonomy, which allowed them to, to make some decisions that really did um, keep their, their local priorities, I think, at the front of what they were doing.
1: And I remember my, I'm remembering my Cheshire cat metaphor and and we were really (laughs) ourselves, I think, that, that notion that a school leader is a central heroic figure who's always charismatically out the front. And so for me, the Cheshire cat was a very unusual metaphor, but one which kind of embraced the deliberateness of leaders' visibility or invisibility and the way that they navigate different tensions and code switch between different situations that they might find themselves in. And I'm wondering as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, Ofsted reports and inspections have continued to happen in the UK despite the pandemic. Uh, There's been lots of things happening in terms of to what extent school leaders are either trusted more or inspected more or surveilled more. Uh, I'm wondering about what you think about how the either the performative nature or just the nature of principal's work and principal's professional standing has changed at all during the pandemic. So have they been clawing back autonomy? Are they being measured on different things? Are they being left alone to do their work? What are your observations about how things are the same or how they've changed?
0: Yeah, I think it's probably a little bit of a mix, which is the always the response of a critical researcher. <laughs> it's always a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but Being on Twitter and just I follow a lot of English head teachers and and teachers and seeing the experiences that they had during COVID, it was kind of fascinating to watch from Australia because I'm based in Melbourne and so we had a very different experience of the pandemic so far than other states in Australia had, certainly at the time. Um, And so I was kind of watching to see what would happen here because we always follow (laughs) a little bit after what happens overseas. And Pat Thompson and some colleagues in the UK are doing some really, really important work. They did a really large survey of um, head teachers in England, and they found that 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 trust that you you know you raise trust as an issue that was decimated for a lot of principals. They like here were kind of being positioned on the front lines um, and expected to do huge amounts of additional work, probably much more than than a lot of what was happening here. You know, they were organising testing and tracing and and all sorts of things that were just being thrown at them with a, a media announcement. And then, you know, it's their responsibility the next day, which many Australian teachers also experienced. So there was that sort of feeling of they were doing huge amounts of heavy lifting during the the really difficult days of the pandemic and yet we're now back to a situation where that's it's not over by any means and as you say, Ofsted has um, started back up and you sort of see people will tweet, you know, I got the phone call today, Ofsted are coming in a couple of days, I, I don't even know who's going to be in my school at that time. So I think for me so much of what we do in schools or so much of the way we think about schools or kind of the policy that we write about schools and the way we interact with schools so much of that could be done more effectively if we did place that concept of trust at the center of of what we do so you know in Australia we have incredibly skilled and educated teachers and school leaders but we don't seem to trust that they know what's best For their community, you know, in conjunction with their community. I'm not saying the heroic principal comes in and says, you know, this is what we should do. And I think that that's an ongoing challenge for educational leadership research is to not kind of hold people up to that sort of standard because it has to be a collective effort. And the community is often there long after teachers and principals have moved on as well. So I think the community has to be central to these questions. But if we did think about things in a much more trusting way and think about more about how we can support people to to achieve their goals rather than how we can make sure that they're doing the work to achieve those goals. I think that sort of shift in, in paradigm would be really powerful and really, really important.
1: Yeah, some of my observations, if I think about leadership during the pandemic, in some ways, I think, not that it regressed, but I think there was a, a need for more, more empathy And more responsiveness but sometimes actually more decisiveness and principals who might have been naturally wanting to be more subtle in their leadership or work alongside communities and not really be out in front have had to be clear communicators be very decisive and directive leaders sometimes in their school communities because of the pandemic as you say in Australia uh, sometimes principals are finding out what's going on at the press conference not beforehand Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's that the pace of change and the need to provide stability and clarity for a community that's really been something that's just been ongoing and I'm sure principals are pretty exhausted but the work continues as you say. Yeah absolutely
0: absolutely Yeah, yeah. And Fiona Longmuir, who is a colleague of mine at Monash, she actually did some research with principals during the the early days of the pandemic. And that was a really clear finding was that people who were traditionally very collaborative and, and, as you say, sort of worked alongside their communities were having to make those quick decisions because... We were on we still are in many ways on the back foot and trying to play catch up and, and catch up with the next thing that sort of comes out of nowhere and um, and hits us within the pandemic and, and the you know, all of the other things that are happening either as a result of or alongside the pandemic. So I think that sense of exhaustion is very, very real. And I often think, you know, there are principals who spent the summer before the pandemic dealing with those horrific bushfires. So these people haven't had a real break for years now. Um, and I think that that's something that is really, really concerning.
1: And if I sort of move us in a different direction from bushfires and a pandemic to something that seems really banal, <laughs> but I wrote a paper by you and Neil Selwyn, which I found really interesting about principals and email. And email seems to be, mm-hmm. you would think, oh, this is just a very inconsequential and insignificant thing to be thinking about in terms of the work of a school leader. But you talked about the freedoms and oppressions of email and the way that principals engaged and disengaged with emails. And it comes back to that idea we talked about at the start about what is the work of principals made up of? Like, what are they engaging with? What are they being sucked away to do? Uh, I'm sure they could spend all day if they wanted to responding to emails. So can you talk a little bit about the work you did with Neil on emails and principalship?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny that you say um, you kind of you, – you would think emails are a little bit old and, you know, not that interesting because – That was certainly what the reviewers of our paper said at first. Like, why are you focusing on this? There's so many other things that we should be getting on with. And so Neil Selwyn is at, you know, he's at the cutting edge of these sort of research into digital technologies and his other work is focusing on, like, artificial intelligence in schools and what this means for young people's privacy. And meanwhile, he and I are, like, emails seem to be really, really important (laughs) at the same time. So I think that's part of the challenge is that there's this assumption that because we are so used to working with emails and it's just a part of our lives every day that you kind of feel like, oh, that it just is what it is and it's just a normal part of of how things are. But we sort of found that they really represented uh, a big challenge for people. So we went into this project with a really open mind about you know, we expected to hear about things like um, learning management systems and um, all sorts of kind of other other technology stuff. But every single time we would start an interview, the first thing that would come up would be emails and that was just so clearly the thing that was on people's minds. And so, you know, as researchers, we follow the data and we, we sort of didn't push back and we found that part of the challenge for people was, um, the fact that often emails are on your phone now, and I mentioned before that kind of sense of, of responsibility that that principals tend to feel, and I, and I know that teachers feel responsible, and, and other school staff also feel responsible. But there's something about being the accountable officer at a school. So when things go pear-shaped in a school, it, it's always going to come back to the principal at the end of the day. And when those principals are feeling already really heightened levels of anxiety and stress, and, and kind of coming towards what we recognise as as being burnt out, people spoke about wanting to be on top of everything that was going on. So they they would check their email really frequently, um, regardless of the the time or what else they were doing or you know people talked about checking emails at their kids end of year concerts and at breakfast away and, and all sorts of things because there might be something in there that they're gonna have to deal with and so there's that I think that kind of that ultimate responsibility that people feel really impacted on the way they interacted with this kind of 24/7 expectation of responsiveness and awareness and that had a really significant impact for some people on their ability to switch off from the job so there were people in our study though that were really really intentional about the way they dealt with emails so they either refused to look at them outside of certain periods of time or they would say they would never have them on a device they would never have them on their personal phone and yeah so it was overwhelmingly the the stories that we heard were around the challenges but there were some kind of pockets of of possibility for the way people might rethink the way they they communicate with people or work with people via those digital technologies.
1: So email, I think when I read the paper, it sort of seemed like a microcosm for some of those issues around principal workload and principal autonomy and principal, whether principals resisted or complied or, uh, you know, sort of almost a, a small representation of all that work. Uh, and the other topic I really want to talk to you about, which is a crucial topic in educational leadership literature, is uh, fashion. <laughs> And obviously that's not um, something that appears much, but you and Pat Thompson are doing this really interesting work about wardrobes and women and school leadership. And you talk in some of the preliminary and early work that you've done around how leaders dress. Again, it's sort of taking something that seems perhaps not as connected To this big field but actually becomes representative of things like identity of work of that outward expression of identity and you talk as well about things like wardrobes and and the way that leaders dress as revealing inequities in gender and class for instance so it becomes this sort of site Mm -hmm. of investigating equity and identity and all that kind of thing so i'd love you to talk about the work that you and pat are doing around women leaders and their wardrobes yeah, I, I'd love to talk about that, Deb. So um, it's one of those topics that
0: um, people kind of give you a little smile when you say, oh, I'm doing this project looking at fashion or wardrobes and, and, and appearance and school leaders. And then the second that they think about it, they go, oh, actually, that is really interesting or well, that's a, you know, a really rich area. Or So we started, Pat and I were both school principals and we just were chatting one day about the way our wardrobe changed when we took up the role and then again how it changed when we moved into academia and you know at different in different contexts in different schools or at different times in our lives and we suspected we weren't alone like this wasn't just (laughs) that we hadn't just found each other as the only two people in the world that had had these experiences and so we um, decided to try to um, to talk to other women about it and so we started with a survey I think we had over 400 people respond in quite a quick period of time and that found those sorts of things that we that you you know you spoke about so um we heard a lot about the kind of the kind of clothes that a woman leader is expected to wear and what that symbolizes or what that signals to people about her professionalism about her capability to do the job We've been able to draw a lot on some sociological fashion studies sort of concepts, Um, also employability stuff around things like appearance and fit for the job. And these are kind of really loaded concepts or loaded terms that are often used to gatekeep, um, keep people out of roles, to reproduce the same kind of people, to go into roles. And so when you hear about things like... um, people being told they're not the right type of person to become a leader, things um, often are representative of that, of, you know, we've heard about ageism, we've heard about ableism, racism um, and sexism in the sorts of selection practices that are happening by people being told that they're not the right fit for a particular school or a particular role. Um, And we heard um, really consistently um, stories about the sorts of things that women were implicitly expected to wear, sometimes explicitly in school dress codes. But um, often, you know, the, the uniform for a leader is dark clothing, very tailored. Um, often people spoke about the blazer. And so Pat and wrote a chapter about the power of the blazer that um, serves as a kind of Um, piece of armour for people. You know, if they knew that they were going to a difficult meeting or if they knew that they had to be on show that day, they would put on their blazer as a little bit of a confidence boost or to, to help them dress themselves into the role. So it was kind of like a putting on that identity of being a leader each morning. And part of what really became clear to us was that that was happening because people would then talk about their weekend wardrobe and it was almost the opposite so they would talk about being really relaxed and um, you know wearing really floaty clothes or florals or or bright colors or being able to express themselves a lot more than they really felt like they could with the expectations that are sort of placed on people for what they wear so I like I could go on about this for a really long time Deb.
1: It was really obvious in that chapter that you wrote about the blazer that that was obviously something Mm. that just emerged from the data as a huge wave of um, commentary from yeah. the women that you had surveyed and i'm just looking across my office now at my emergency blazer that hangs in my office which is the one <laughs> where i haven't got one and i realize i've got a formal something to go to touring the school or presenting to parents that i can put that blazer on to appear professional interestingly i was also reflecting that as a woman leader sometimes something like a lipstick can be part of that uh uniform and that now mm-hmm. mask wearing in schools it's um you have to think about things a bit differently because uh your lipstick's kind of useless when it comes to having to wear a mask it's down to just the blazer is there anything else you wanted to say about that wardrobe work that you're doing um yeah
0: i think there's a couple of really interesting things that are coming through for us at the moment around questions of authenticity for people and so there is a there's an emotional struggle that happens for people or a struggle in terms of their identity work where they're kind of putting on this costume, they feel like, you know, and it's making them imagine themselves to be a certain type of leader but Again, the same with the autonomy stuff, you know, the further along people get in their career and the more confident they become in their their ability to have their work stand on its own two feet, they are sort of tending to bring a little bit more of themselves back into, to you know, their appearance and that might be opting for more comfortable clothing because often, you know, the sorts of clothing women were describing were quite constrictive and difficult to move around in and obviously as a principal sometimes you are running across the school trying to deal with something quickly or chase a kid that has absconded or or, you know those are real examples that people shared and so they're kind of um I suppose loosening up a little bit of that that expectation on themselves but that that doesn't come easily still there are expectations from community from other staff from colleagues and that that's not going to disappear overnight I don't think but we're we're finding some really interesting conversations with people at the moment about what COVID has done to their mentality around this stuff. And a lot of people are sort of saying what mattered to them pre-COVID doesn't doesn't have the same um, hold over them or that doesn't have the same place in their kind of thinking now. And there was one really incredible conversation I had with someone who said, you know, we were on Zoom for a year and people saw my kids running around and screaming at each other in the background. So any kind of fake veneer I had (laughs) over this you know really put together um, work day just went out the window and so I feel like I can be myself now and that's letting me connect with people in a really authentic way Um, and so yeah that's some work that we're doing at the moment that I'm really excited about and will hopefully be coming out soon that I'll be able to share with you.
1: So one of the silver linings of the pandemic then is that when you by necessity, invite people into your home and, you know, that wearing comfortable shoes, not high heels and things like that, that you, your authenticity shines through regardless of how you might want to perform your identity to others. And so there's an authenticity there. And I think yeah. that authenticity and empathy and realness has also been valued during this time as well. Absolutely. That human connection,
0: you know, we realise so much more that it's about really connecting with someone on a, on a kind of human level rather than... Um, and that's not always, you know, that shift is not always comfortable for people. And obviously it's been really difficult to invite your colleagues into your work, into your home in ways that people would never have done if they had had a choice. Mm-hmm. So I think there's kind of a, a reevaluating or a, a re-aligning of, of a lot of those relationships um, that is still ongoing and, and sort of still being negotiated for a lot of people as well.
1: Thank you. So we're coming to the end of our time together and so I'm going to move to the enlightening round of the Edgy Salon. Uh, The first question (laughs) is um, what is something unexpected that many people might not know about you?
0: My um my go-to fun fact about me as an icebreaker, I'm going to use it now and then I'll never be able to use it again. Um, when I was a school principal, I was on school camp and I actually got to drive Steve Irwin's whale-watching boat. <laughs> so <laughs> that's kind of like my, my big adventure as a school principal, I think. And then we had to take part in a search and rescue mission, so I was promptly moved away from the wheel um, and given back to someone who had actual expertise in what they were doing.
1: <laughs> That sounds like um, a good day in school principalship. And uh, (laughs) something that is currently on your desk, if indeed you have a desk at home, I do
0: have a desk. Yes, it's um, I've become very familiar with my home desk over the last few years. (laughs) So um, one thing I have, I clean my desk up for a really optimistic fresh start for 2022. So I have um, a book that I'm currently really engrossed in, which is about the kind of um, the way policy affects uh, teachers and um, the way it kind of makes us possibly comply with things that we don't necessarily want to do or agree with um, and I also have a little set of speakers because I like to listen to music when I write and I'm trying to get some writing done before we jump into semester one. What's the book? It's called The Affected Teacher by an, um, a researcher from the UK called Alex Moore and he just writes the most marvellous books around the kind of you know, intersection between policy and teachers lives so it's one that I've been recommending to everyone. That will listen to me at the moment.
1: And it's linking I suppose a couple of your real interests in terms of policy and systems with the reality of the lives and experiences of people in the work in education. Absolutely I've run out of three
0: highlighters I think so far just working my way through the first few chapters so there's lots in there.
1: And what about someone that inspires you in your work?
0: I suppose building on the conversations that we've had tonight one of the people who really inspires me is Pat Thompson so she's person I'm doing the the wardrobe study with and she's a professor of education so I think what I find inspiring about Pat is the way she works as a researcher and kind of the way she moves through the world she's very generous anyone who's listening to this who's doing doctoral research or postgraduate research has probably stumbled across her blog patter where she has spent the last many years giving um, incredibly helpful advice you know if you're coming up with any question about research you can just google that question plus pat thompson and she has answered it for you already so there's a generosity i think in the way that she works that i find really inspiring and and really try to live up to in my own interactions with people
1: she is very very generous as a, as a scholar and as a blogger and I certainly, um, mm-hmm. had, she, her website was well worn when I was doing my PhD. She definitely helped to illuminate yes. <laughs> some of the mysteries of doing a doctorate for someone who's not in the academy. And so mm-hmm. you're in the middle of doing this wardrobes work, you're continuing to work with principals. What's something that you have coming up that you're excited about?
0: I actually just started a new project today. I did the first interview today for a project focusing on um, following a principal in the first five years that they spend at a new school. So we're keeping it really deliberately open to um, the sorts of experiences that this person has and the sorts of, you know, where the job takes them, where the the current (laughs) world takes them as well. And so um, it was a really... One of those moments that I, I got off the interview and I just thought that was lightning in a bottle, you know, it was the kind of moment of like, this is why I love my job so much and why I love doing what I do so much, getting to speak to someone about these really important things and kind of remembering the generosity of people who give up their time to, to talk to researchers and help us to understand what's going on at the moment. So that's going to keep me excited for the next five years, which is quite lovely. <laughs>
1: Lovely. And I think the nice thing that I've enjoyed about this conversation as we've been going is that while there are some worrying data around principalship and uh, you've managed to to sort of remind listeners about the rewards and satisfaction of principalship and also now the joys of being an academic, which I don't about. <laughs> Yeah, true. (laughs) And so my final question then, Amanda, is if you were to distill your current thinking about education to its essence, what is one thought or resource that you would like to leave listeners with? I think it's a thought that comes
0: back to the conversation we had earlier. Um, I just really think that it, for me, everything at the moment comes back to trust and that sense of if we trust our staff, our leaders, our teachers and our communities, you know, that they know what is needed for the young people in their care and that they have the ability and skills to work towards that, um, that they don't need to be micromanaged, that, you know, things aren't going to be externally imposed on them. And I think that that really gives that opportunity for a shift in how we think about schooling that is, I think, sorely needed right now. So that's my my essence is how do we really rethink what's happening right now to, to place that trust and that expertise at the centre of, of people working in schools.
1: I think that's a really important and fairly big challenge and it's to do with governments, media, communities, parents, uh everyone that wraps around education and around schools to be able to put that trust in the people that are actually in the schools, running the schools, knowing the schools that they're in. I think that's a really important Mm. call to action, even though there's lots of action that will need to come from that. So Amanda, (laughs) thank you so much for joining me today on the Edu Salon.
0: Thank you, Deb. It's been lovely to chat and I'm really excited to um, listen to the rest of your episodes as
1: well. Awesome. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Edu Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network, by giving this podcast a rating or review, and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.